obviously looked down and could see my arm was very badly damaged. It was hanging by a piece of skin. Stop the bleeding as quick as possible or I was gonna die. 242, have you responding code one? We have a that lady unconscious. Topic approach 1320. Hi, I'm Landon Mitchell from the Royal Flying Doctor Service and this is a podcast series about mateship, about life in the bush and about the role that the Royal Flying Doctor Service plays in servicing rural communities. This is the Flying Doctor Podcast. Someone brought out towels straight away to just cover it so no one else could see what was going on because it was it was pretty horrific. I think it took me about two seconds to make the decision and I just said, nah, cut it off. On this episode, we're going to be talking to Leroy, a regular young bloke living in a red dirt remote community of Packsaddle in New South Wales. Packsaddle's about 175 kilometres west of Broken Hill and it's where the Silver City Highway crosses the Packsaddle Creek. It's rumoured that the name Pack Saddle was given by Burke and Wills, who lost a Pack Saddle crossing that creek, which must have been one of the very rare times that that creek was flooded and running, as most of the time it's just stony dry. Leroy works at the Pack Saddle Roadhouse, which has cabins and camping sites, along with a pub and a casual place to get a feed. When I visited recently, I was struck by the red landscape, the corrugated buildings, the flies, and the big welcoming smiles of the locals. Tell me a little bit about Pack Saddle. What's it like? Pack Saddle Roadhouse is uh, located 175 kilometres north of Broken Hill. Um, we are a roadhouse slash truck stop. Um, we have accommodation here. Um, it's a, a diamond in the dust for any weary traveller that uh, comes across us. And have you been there a long time? I've been here for five years now. And uh, started, uh, I think, around August 2015. I uh, was in Broken Hill, not doing a lot at the time, and got an opportunity to come out and do a bit of work out here. And uh, I, I jumped at it just to, you know, something different, see the outback a bit bit differently from what I've seen in Broken Hill. And, uh, yeah, that was yeah, five years ago and I've, I've never looked back. And what do you love about it, about living in such a remote area of New South Wales? I guess it's the, the, the main thing for me out here is the people. Um, you're always meeting someone new and everyone's just so down to earth, uh, especially the locals. Um, at first, I, I didn't really know anyone out here. It took me a while to, I guess, find my place in, in the roadhouse. And then once I started to make new friends, it just, it, this felt like home for me. And uh, you're always hearing new stories every day from travellers coming through where they've been. And that, I think that's one thing that keeps it interesting for me. The Packsaddle Roadhouse tends to be the hub for all the local region for events. And there's two major events that happen in that part of the world. Uh, the first one is the Gymkhana, which occurs around Easter and that's a large horse event, but also motorbikes and so forth, and everyone comes from the region. There's a second very large event which occurs at Christmas time, uh, where Santa obviously shows up. So tell me about that day and, and, and how that had rolled out. So that, that day is one of the biggest for us, um, besides the Gymkhana. Uh, you, we, we look at uh, upwards of, I think, about 40 to 50 children, and then you've got a approximately the same amount of adults. So you can get anywhere from up to about 120 to 130 people here. 
which is a, a very, very big night for us. So uh, a lot of planning goes into the day from getting, you know, all your tables and chairs ready, which we borrow from our Gymkhana grounds. So it was the day after. It was the, the day after we were doing the big clean-up and um, a couple of the other guys from here, um, Bernie, he's from the station next door, Nanduka, and Clinton, who is the, the boss's son here, the owner's son, is uh, my best mate. We um, were taking some stuff back down to the Gymkhana grounds, so uh, some of the eskies and tables and chairs and that, and uh, jumped in the little Polaris buggy we've got here, the four-wheeler with the bench seat, and uh, threw the esky in the back and drove down the Gymkhana grounds, and uh, I was driving in the left-hand, it's a left-hand drive vehicle. I uh, jumped behind the wheel and went down there uh, on a bit of an unfamiliar dirt track. Being so far out here, we get uh, a lot of dust storms, so there's sand everywhere. And uh, I think I just a bit too quick around a corner, um, the buggy got caught in a bit of sand and it just kind of lost control, throwing me out straight away. And then I, I hit the dirt and put my arms out in front of me to stop my face from hitting the ground. And then I didn't feel anything. I just got up off the ground and everyone you yelled out to each other like, yep, yeah, we're all okay, all okay. And then uh, the boys turned around and looked at me and they said, oh, I don't think you are. So uh, obviously the, the buggy had come over the top of me and, and hit me in the arm and then it uh, kept rolling again with those two still inside it. And uh, so they got, um, they got the buggy back on its wheels and then it wouldn't start at first. So that's automatically a bit of shock goes into all of us. We think, oh, we're, we're stuck here. But uh, luckily Bernie started running uh, back to the roadhouse, which is about three and a half kilometres away to, to get help. And uh, while Clinton tried to get the buggy going and thank God he, he got it going. And, and what are you doing? Are you standing there, lying there? Where, where are you at this point? Um, so I... Obviously looked down and could see my arm was, was very badly damaged. It was uh, hanging by a piece of skin and uh, there was a lot, a lot of blood coming out. So my, my first thought was um, I need to stop the bleeding. So I had uh, the keys for the Gymkhana ground, which were on like a neck lanyard. And so I don't, don't know where I knew it, but I just I knew to make a tourniquet out of that and stop the bleeding. Um, as quick as possible or I, I was going to die. Um, and then uh, this, the second thing I thought was that the arm was just going to drop off. So I had to hold the neck lanyard with my teeth and then hold my arm up so it didn't f- fall off. And then luckily by that stage, just I'd, I'd done all that. Um, I heard the buggy start and Clinton yelled at me to get in. We need to go. That's just shocking, Leroy. So you you jump in the buggy then and you've got to now travel three kilometres back to this, the roadhouse. Are you in a lot of pain? Um, and initially, no, I, no. I wasn't in a lot of pain. I think shock, early shock set in straight away. Um, when it first happened, I, I, f- I think I felt the bone snap in my arm 
like I thought, oh, it's broken. And I knew that straight away, but for some reason I wasn't that fast. Um, and then I think the drive back to the roadhouse, the only thing that I was really thinking is like, this can't be real, like as if this is happening. Um, and yeah, I, I personally knew straight away that it it wasn't looking good, so I didn't try and move it. I didn't I didn't look at it. I was just focusing on you know staying alert and staying awake. You know when uh, you get a lot of blood loss, you uh, start to get drowsy and fall asleep, and that's always the thing that they tell you not to do. So, and Clinton was really good. He he kept talking to me throughout the whole thing, asking me questions, keeping me alert. And, and on that journey back, you are you still holding the lanyard in your teeth and still holding your arm yeah. with your your remaining arm? So you how are you? Yeah. How are you holding on to the buggy so you don't fall out of the buggy? Um, I was uh, my feet. Well, actually, the seat the seat came out of the buggy, so I was pretty much sitting in an open open crevice where it should have been. I was pretty much sitting on the battery, so that kind of held me in a little bit, and then I was just holding myself in with the pressure from my feet down below. Um, still with the neck lanyard in my mouth, still had my arm in my hand trying to hold it there. And, uh, yeah, luckily Clinton Clinton didn't drive erratically on the way back, so it was a nice, nice smooth ride. <laughs> didn't want to hit too many bumps because, you know, it probably caused me a bit more pain. I think the the thing that slowed us down the most was the gates on the way back. So I guess you must have picked up Bernie as your heading back to the Pack Saddle Roadhouse. Is that right? Yeah. So uh, uh, Bernie, he started running um, to go and get help. And once Clinton got the buggy going, uh, he put me in it. So the only really room for Bernie was in the back. So we kind of just, we kind of pretty much just drove straight past Bernie. And as we drove past him, he grabbed grabbed onto the side and, and flung himself into the back which he done at, uh, there's two gates between here and the Gymkhana Grand, so he, each gate that we opened and drove through, Bernie just left the gates open and then as we drove past him, jumped back in. So, you know, trying to make up as much time as we could to get back. Wow. Okay, so you get back to the roadhouse. What happens then? Yeah, so um, getting back to the roadhouse, there was still was a lot of people here from the day before. You know, you always get uh, the, the locals and the, the family members being so close to Christmas that stick around. Um, everyone was out on the front. I think the kids that were still there were having a water balloon fight. When we pulled up, everybody, uh, you know, our first words was like, help, we need help. And... Uh, Everyone kind of looked over at us and they thought we must have hit a kangaroo in the buggy and we've brought the kangaroo part of it back. <laughs> if there was that much blood, they just thought, oh, it's got a dead room. And then they looked at us and kind of just looked away and then I think someone looked at me and seen that I was pale as a ghost, they said, hang on, they, they need help. So uh, I remember seeing uh, Wes, who's a really good mate of mine, he was one of the first over and I said to him, I just said, like, pull that tight, like the, the tourniquet. I said, you need to hold that for me. And uh, then Wes didn't leave my side the whole time. Uh, someone brought out towels straight away to just cover it so no one else could see what was going on because it was it was pretty horrific. And uh, Mia, the, the owner of the roadhouse, she um, someone yelled out to her and her first 
instinct when, you know, it's just flying doctor. So she got straight on the phone to them. Viv, who is Mia's mother-in-law, she is a volunteer ambulance officer and so is Mia. So thankfully we had um, the green whistle methoxyfluorane here and they could administer that straight away to help with pain management, which was really good because uh, without that uh, it, it would have hurt a lot, lot more. Um, after that, my memory is a bit, bit hazy on the whole situation. I guess the, uh, the, the pain management worked and I can't remember a lot. But uh, everyone's told me what else happened. They, uh, they told me that I was fully alert the whole time and uh, until I got onto the flying doctor plane. The dirt strip, uh, I mean, I landed on that dirt strip just last year and that's not far from Pack Saddle Roadhouse at all. I mean, just literally a stone's throw almost. Yeah, it's, as the crow flies, I think it's about 100 metres, but we have to... Uh, travel down the bitumen road, so I think it works out to be uh, about 250, 300 metres. And, uh, yeah, I got got really, I mean, the whole situation, I got really lucky, but um, with regards to the plane that picked me up, they were actually flying from Moomba gas fields with a patient and they they got the call and they pretty much, I think the pilot must have known our strip and landed there before. And he, he knew where he was, so he pretty much started descending from the time he got the call and, and landed. I think it took 15 minutes from the call to the plane being there. So it's just, it's incredible how, how quickly they can respond to these kind of things. So the flight to Adelaide, if, um, it's a fairly lengthy one. It's a fair distance from Pack Saddle to Adelaide. From memory, from uh, Broken Hill to Adelaide is 40 minutes from the Flying Doctor plane, so I guess add an extra. It, it would have been about an hour from, from Pack Saddle Airstrip. So you arrive in Adelaide and... Do you remember that at all or do you just remember waking up after surgery? Uh, yeah, I remember uh, getting to Adelaide. Um, my auntie and uncle uh, were waiting for me in the emergency room. So they, they live in Adelaide and they were actually out for dinner at the time and hadn't even got their food, got the call, and they just got up and walked away. So they were waiting for me in the emergency room to, uh, to, to help me through it. And, uh, and then I remember the... The flight nurse must have come over to me and said, like, we've got all your possessions. We've got your watch, your your phone and your wallet. And I remember my first my first instinct was I said, oh, you've got my phone. Can you take a picture for me? So I've, uh, I've got some pretty gory photos on my phone from that, um, which I'm glad I, I, did, I did take them in a way. <laughs> Need some kind of proof. But, uh, yeah, that's... And then they, they asked me, they made the decision with me, um, my auntie and uncle, they, the doctor asked me, he said, uh, this will be a big decision for you, mate. Um, we will be able to reattach your arm, but you will never be able to use it. So they can't, it's the nerves that they can't figure out where all that stuff goes. 
And uh, it, I think it took me about two seconds to make the decision and I just said, nah, cut it off. There's no point walking around with an arm if I can't use it. Wow. Okay. So you took the decision to have your, your arm amputated. What is the recovery of something like that? How do you, what, what sort of rehabilitation process do you have to go through? So after surgery, I was in Royal Adelaide Hospital for two weeks in bed. They wouldn't let me get up because um, obviously my balance, they said that but that was the biggest thing that it will throw my balance off. And uh, I think they were scared that I'd try and stand up and uh, as soon as I stand up, I'd fall and land straight on the end of my stump. And that I've, I have done that and that really hurts. So I could see why they did that. Um, uh, after Royal Adelaide Hospital, I was taken to Hampstead Rehabilitation Centre and they we worked on uh, yeah, balance. Balance was the main thing for it. And the... The wound itself healed really, really quickly. Um, there was still a lot of swelling around it, but uh, that went down eventually. So it was a lot of um, – actually, the first thing they got me was on one of those uh, a video games, the Wii Fit. So they stand you on a board and, you you know, you're practising all this skiing stuff. They said this is one of the best things to help amputation uh, arm amputations. So I'd done that for three or four days and then they was just it was just getting me my fitness fitness back, um, legs moving again because I wasn't allowed to walk for two weeks and, you know, it gives you like jelly legs. Um, so treadmills and then after the balance was all good and well back, um, there's a lot of resistance bands for my shoulder because um, the – Non-use just has worn away all the muscle and everything there. So they really tried to help me get my shoulder strength back um, and just just using the stump itself, getting it ready for a, a prosthetic to be fitted. Do you have what they sometimes call phantom pain? Y- yeah, so there's, there's phantom pain and there's phantom sensation. Um, I'll explain. Phantom sensation is the feeling of still having the uh, amputated limb there, so I can still feel my arm. Um, over the years, it used to feel like it was just in a sling, but over the years it's kind of moved and deformed. It kind of feels like it's all scrunched up at the moment. And uh, so there's phantom sensation and then there's phantom pain. So every now and then I'll get a a shooting pain which feels like it goes straight down my arm and into the end of my fingers, which is is really weird because obviously there's nothing there. It's just the nerve endings. And then you just have to, like, touch the end of the stump to just reassure the brain, retrain the brain and tell it, like, it's gone. How can that be hurting? Is there... um an impact mentally as well when you have such a severe injury and then a change has that impacted you personally um uh, not really i think uh, out of everything um losing my arm has made me a, a better person um not that i was a bad person before but it's just it's changed my perspective 
perspective on life. Um, like a lot of people, they said to me, they said, when it comes to amputations, you get two kinds of people. The first kind of people that will sit and moan like, woe is me, um, I can't go on. The second kind of people like myself just keep looking forward. I think since the accident, I've had one, two days where I've completely broke down. Um, one of those was three weeks after the operation. I was in rehab. Um, the lady asked me, I went to the gym in my thongs and she asked me to go and get my shoes on. I walked back to my room and I just broke down. She came looking for me. She said, what's wrong? And I was just, I just looked at her and I was like, why, why me? Like, why did this have to happen to me? The second time I was here using a drill trying to put a smoke alarm in and I could not keep the screw on the end of it and it kept falling off and I absolutely lost it. Broke down and I was like, why can't I do this? <laughs> <laughs> but since then, it's, it's, all, it's all smiles, you know. There's nothing I can do about it now. Um, the emotional side of things, there's no, I haven't thought about it too much. I mean, I think about it every day, but it hasn't affected me at all. One of the be biggest um, things that helped me through it all was knowing that I had my job to come back to here at the Roadhouse. And uh, I remember saying to Mia, um, I'm not going to be able to pour a beer. I said, how can I hold the glass and operate the taps at the same time? So uh, she said, well, we're just going to have to try. So we went out into the bar and... Uh, got a mob of glasses there lined up and she said well I'm going to practice with you and she put one arm behind her back and we just it's just trial and error and uh, yeah we got there in the end and now I can pour a perfect beer. There you go that's the most important skill of any Australian. <laughs> yeah absolutely. <laughs> What's the most popular beer that you end up pouring? Uh, Great Northern. Yeah number one beer here. I even got it tattooed on my arm. <laughs> Leroy, I, I want to thank you for taking the time to chat to me today. It's been fantastic. Thank you so much. That's not a problem. I'm Lana Mitchell from the Royal Flying Doctor Service and thank you for listening to the Flying Doctor podcast. The Flying Doctor podcast was presented by me, Lana Mitchell. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with someone who you think will love it too. Thank you for listening to the Flying Doctor podcast.